Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. For decades, Sister Helen Prejean has been a prominent advocate against the death penalty. She began working with prisoners on death row in the 1980s and chronicled her experience in the 1993 book Dead Man Walking. It became an Oscar-winning movie, a play, and an opera. You wouldn't be human if you weren't scared. Human? Who said I was human? I think you're very human. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. It is now one of the most performed American operas and will be staged in February by the Atlanta Opera. It tells the story of Sister Helen and her relationship with death row inmate Joseph DeRocher. And Sister Helen Prejean joins us in the studio today. A hearty welcome to you. Thank you. Love being here. Well, op- opera as an art form is not traditionally known for reaching the masses. What did you think when first approached about this? You know what the fir- very first thought uh, I had, because it had been a very successful film to reach the masses, the very first thing I thought was, wow, it'll be the most powerful expression you can get in art because it's live drama with singing. And music brings us into places of our heart we don't even know we have. And Terrence McNally was the librettist. Jake Hagee was a composer, and they did a magnificent job. It's a powerful journey, not just for Sister Helen, me, who really was on a journey. Tim Robbins loves to say all the time, the nun was in over her head, because I'd never done anything like this before. But the audiences can be on a, a, quite a journey, too. Well, what, how about you when you first saw it on the stage? What did you think? You know what I thought, Virginia? Just like when I saw the movie, it's going to bring it out to the people. See, George has been killing people right and left in the name of the people. And you've had some terrible executions, all of all of these killings. But it's removed from people's eyes. It's a secret ritual. Very few witnesses see it. And people hear, oh, well, look, they did a terrible crime. They must be guilty. They deserve to die. Opera is going to open the curtains and bring people as close as you can get without being there of what it really means and into the anguish of the victim's families. Because what can you do for a victim's family who's lost, like their son or their daughter? I've known these families. They, you wake up in the morning, it's an ordinary day. Your kid's going to school. That night, your kid goes to a football game. And you know your kid always would come home at 1130 or would call you, and your kid doesn't come home. And they find your kid lying in a sugarcane field, shot in the back of the head, and your whole life changes. Mm. What can we as a society possibly do to try to help victims' families from that kind of trauma and loss? So what the formula has been, the answer has been, well, if you lose a loved one like that, we are going to honor your dead child, and we're going to help you heal by killing the one who killed your loved one. And that's what the death penalty is. So the audience is going to be brought four square into the middle of this in the opera because it opens with the murder. So there's no moral energy inside people. Did he do it or not? We see him doing it. We see the murder's terrible, innocent, an innocent couple. And we don't like him. 
He's not remorseful. He blames everybody else. I'm like, bring it on. Mm. Let's see justice. Is that an important part for you to reach in your communications with the prisoners that you've worked with on death row, that they tell you what happened? Well, you know, yeah, of course, because all you're trying to do, I don't have the answer to their eternal salvation or the answer to their life, most of whom were abused as children, came up in violent situations. I accompany them as friends, which means I also help them be honest. And so, like, all the individuals, I've been with six people who were executed, and all of them were different. And the second person I was with, Robert Lee Willie, I only got to be with him for two months. He was tough. He had a swastika tattooed Mm -hmm. on his arm, and he said, the electric chair don't bother me. And he actually did walk to the electric chair with this little bounce in his steps. Because when you're an outlaw in your mentality, then you're going to out-outlaw them. You're going to out-tough them. They're going to kill you. Well, you're going to show them that you're going to do it with flair and with pizzazz. Go ahead, kill me. Because that's their identity. Because some people think, uh, or maybe most of us, well, if they're going to die, then that's going to make them come to grips honestly with conscience and what they've done. Human beings are very, very complicated. And, and like with Robert Willie, it was really hard for him to come to grips with the pain that he had caused a family. Because in his mind, he said, you know, that his partner in, in the crime His was, brother, wasn't it? Well, it's complicated. The, you know, that's, Joe DeRocher is a, uh, is a composite character. So it's not exactly as it was in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been different stories in the book. But anyway, in Robert Willie's case, he was not the one who actually stabbed the victim and killed her, but he held her hands. And in his mind, he actually went to a place where he felt that he was innocent. Of course, under the law, anybody participating in the crime where somebody's murdered is guilty, first-degree murder. You have all kind of complications that get in there. The heart of it, though, was for him to be able to say, to come to the pain that he had caused the families. He was angry at the families because they had had a press conference, the victim's family, saying they couldn't wait to see him die. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, well, I got a thing or two to say to them family. And parents went, and I'm going, Robert, Robert. So it's really a struggle. He was also racist to the core. You know, he just, there were so many things. So so how do you find empathy for these people? I mean, I read about the crimes that they committed. Of course, as you said, the characters in the book and in the opera are composites. But, you know, killing young couples, shooting them in the head. They were, you know, begging to die because they were being treated so horribly. How do you, you know, you're talking about having human compassion for them. They, they're doing inhuman things. Absolutely. And, and there's outrage over that horrifying acts, you outrage. I was outraged. You know, sometimes I'd look down at the hands of Patrick Sonier and the hands of his brother that held that rifle that ended those kids' life. So you have two things in your soul going on at the same time, that outrage at the crime. And then you see that goodness coming through him as well. Gratitude, thank you for coming to see me. You see there's more to people than that worst, terrible act of their life. Human beings are very complex. And uh, so it's a mixture. 
I mean, you know, some of the stories that are being done now of men that have abused women, and then when their story is told, what happened to them, and then we enter into complexity. And the great thing about an opera, it's going to bring you into the complexity on both sides. There's one of the scenes when Jay Kagi wrote this. He called me on the telephone. He tried to plink it out on the piano and sing it at the same mm -hmm. time over the telephone because he knew he had the heart of the opera. And it's an ensemble where the victim's parents are standing on the stage. Sister Helen's in the middle. But the mother of Joseph DeRoche is standing there. And the victim's families are singing, you don't know what it's like to see your child go out the door and you never see him alive again. The last thing you say to him is, did you clean your room? Mm. And if you know that this is going to be the last words, and, but here's the mother of Joseph DeRoche singing, you don't know what it's like to see your child slip through your hands. Will he ever know how much I love him? And I'm in the middle going from one to the other, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And one of the victim's families, Mr. Hart, says at one point, Sister, you got a lot to be sorry about because mm -hmm. you are way, way out of line here. And basically, you don't know what you're doing either. And there was truth in that because I plunged into it. And at first, when I'm visiting the man on death row uh, and learning about human rights and that the government shouldn't purposefully, in a premeditated way, be killing people, I didn't know what to do about the victims' families because they were so angry. I thought it won't do any good to try to go visit them because the prosecution had told them, Anybody who's against this execution is against you and is against your child. And I stayed away from them. And it was terrible, uh, Virginia, because uh, when I met them, I, it couldn't have been a worse time. I met them at a pardon board hearing. And when you walk into a pardon board hearing in Louisiana, it's public. Mm -hmm. You actually sign a book which side you're on life or death. Mm. And the first time I'm meeting them, it's because I'm there to plead for the life of Patrick Sonier. And they say, well, here's when the nun comes up, this bleeding heart for the murderer, but she hadn't done anything for us. So some of their anger was legitimate. And then there's that encounter with them, and that's real. That's right in the opera. It's right there. It's in the movie, too. Where I encountered them, we were walking on the street. We were outside the building. And one family was just so angry at me, they didn't even speak. They just walked past me in stony silence. But one of the families, Lloyd LeBlanc and his wife, Eula, their son had been killed. And Lloyd LeBlanc is really the hero of Dead Man Walking. And, and Mr. Hart in the movie Owen Hart approximates him because he's on a journey. He can't wait for the death of this man who killed his daughter. And, and you just see him trying to make his way out from under the rage. He said, when I look in a mirror, I see a sad man. Everybody's sad. Everybody's. And then right before he goes in the execution, you just see him grasping for healing when he says, I know my pain is about my child's death, not his death. Mm. And as one of the victim's families told me, I could watch him be executed a thousand times and I'd come home but the chair would still be empty where my child sat. So it's a tremendous mystery that we have in this. And, you know, it's not just for the audience, for all of us, that, some, God forbid, somebody would be murdered, but we all know what it is to suffer hurt or somebody we'd love to be hurt and then that instinct in us to get even, 
to be mean, to be angry, to impose pain on people who impose pain on us. That's really the heart of what, what the opera is about. It's, it's deeper than simply the death penalty. Well, you were accused of being way out of line. Were you way out of line, however? I mean, is this what the Catholic Church teaches? They're against the death penalty. How did they respond to you taking this stand quite publicly? Well, it was very interesting because we had an archbishop in New Orleans who had been in the, the, in the military. And he was all for the death penalty. So all the efforts we were doing to educate Louisiana citizens when we'd have a bill before the legislature to abolish it, he's on the other side. And he's forbidding the other Louisiana bishops to stand up because he was the archbishop. So we had a mixed bag of—I just finished writing a book, my memoir, Mm -hmm. of how I got to death row. And I put this prelude in it because when you witness fire— it changes your soul, no matter what a hierarchy of your church or anybody says. And the prelude in River of Fire, which is going to come out in August, says, they killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him in a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act because he had killed. No religious leaders protested the killing that night. But I was there. I saw it with my own eyes, and what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire that burns in me still. And now here's an account of how I came to be there that night. So you have the experience that you have that fires your soul and changes you. And then you have doctrine and church teaching, which always takes longer to catch up mm-hmm. to the experience of the people. And that has happened now in the Catholic Church. Pope Francis— Right, they did officially put it in the catechism. It's and no in the catechism, said. but now the whole challenge is the gospel of Jesus or truth is always to get it into the experience of the people. You can't just have dry doctrine. Now the Pope changed something in the catechism, so you're a Catholic, so get in line now. This is what you believe. There's a journey involved of conversion of going from a place of where you want vengeance to one of, no, we can't trust government to do that. We're speaking with Sister Helen Prejean, a global voice against the death penalty. The Atlanta Opera is opening a production based on her book. It's called Dead Man Walking, and that's happening in February. We'll be back with her in just a moment. From GPB News, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Sister Helen Prejean is with us. She's author of Dead Man Walking. Her organization, the Ministry Against the Death Penalty, advocates for people on death row. An opera based on her book, Dead Man Walking, opens in Atlanta in February. We spoke with a reporter from the Marshall Project last fall. This was about the links between race and class and those who get the death penalty. And he said that the death penalty quote, often goes to people who did not commit the crime, but just had the worst lawyers. So you're looking at a complete legal infrastructure and uh, criminal justice infrastructure in this United States, not just the morality and hearts of people. How, you know, these are two internal and external forces that can seem at odds. Where do you go with that? Let me tell you that the legal structure and how we set up the criminal system in this country is a moral question. You don't have moral questions over here of just heart and conscience and what you believe about Jesus. The way we set up 
who gets the death penalty and who doesn't. Overwhelmingly, we can see it's when people kill white people that they're even a, a candidate for the death penalty. Never when people of color are killed. And then it's always poor people that go to death row because you don't have a good lawyer doing pretrial motions, fighting that prosecutor every step of the way. It becomes so easy for prosecutors to go after somebody who's going to have a lawyer who's overworked, underpaid, and it's not going to fight him or her. And then it's a slam dunk process. They can get away easier with hiding evidence. Or suddenly eyewitnesses don't appear that are supposed to appear. Or they have jailhouse snitches coming on. All those things can happen. Because you don't have oversight in the process, it's supposed to be an adversarial process to come to truth. Prosecution presents, defense presents. When you're poor and you haven't been able to get a lawyer, and if those lawyers at trial do not raise a formal objection like for a black man with an all-white jury being seated, and there's no formal objection, it doesn't go in the transcript, and it cannot be a matter for appeal. So it means you can never be looked at again in the other courts. And you get on a little track, and it's greased, and you're on your way to execution. We started out thinking, maybe, when the Supreme Court put the death penalty back in 76, they put as the criteria to be reserved for the worst of the worst murderers. Well, you know what we found out over these 30-plus years? We don't really know what that means. If you have a criteria that's fuzzy, worst of the worst, well, actually, the murder of anybody that we love is the worst of the worst because you lose a universe that can never be replaced. And what happened is, because the criteria is fuzzy, you have these microcultures. So is it any surprise that over 70% of the actual executions the practitioners of the death penalty have been in the 10 southern states that practice slavery. Does anybody really surprised by that? Because you don't have an airtight criteria, that's not law. That's culture taking over. And so that's why you have 98% of people on death row are all poor. How does that equal justice under law? It can't be. So when we have a Supreme Court with eyes to see, and hearts to feel, and consciences that can, because most people, all people on the Supreme Court are people of privilege. They have lived a life of privilege, and it's much harder for them to get inside the skin and life of people and to see what's the, you know, the unfairness in the practice of the death penalty. So it's going to be state by state. So Georgia, it's going to be Georgia. And I've been in, in and out of Georgia many, many times. In fact, we did a walk from death row in Florida to the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta, right into Atlanta. And then, this is 1990, we carried the coffins of 90 people who had been executed. And now it's over 1,000. But it's all about waking up the people and educating the people. Well, death row sentences in Georgia are pretty rare. These days, most of the people who are executed, are yeah. they're carried out because of old cases that have been cycling through years of right. appeals. So do you think the public or judicial appetite for capital punishment is changing? Yes, absolutely, it's changing. There's not the zeal anymore for executions. I'll give you, my state, Louisiana, we haven't been in execution since 99. Mm. Only one consensual one. And you know what I think is part of it? I was saying this. I got to meet with a cast last night as we went through the final execution scene. For the opera. Yeah, for the opera last night. And, uh, and I just said to them, you know, think of the guards. 
and I tell the story in Dead Man Walking of one of a major cootie who had been a superintendent on death row, and he was doing fine with that. He was fair-minded. He was, and then they moved him to the execution squad. When you're on the execution squad, you're going to practice taking a live human being from his or her cell and walking them and then strapping them down, and you pray that they're going to go quietly and not fight you because you've had, there have been cases where a person about to be executed is looking into the eyes of the guards that are dragging him down the hall saying, don't kill me, don't kill me. And what they're telling the guards, look, it's just part of your job. We're not responsible for this. We're just carrying out. There was a jury. There was a judge. There was a crime. we just carrying out what the sentence is. You're not killing anybody. You're not murdering anybody. And I tell his story in Dead Man Walking of how after five executions, he called me in his office one day and said, I can't do it anymore. Mm. They're defenseless. We are de- killing a defenseless person. And that's what changed the morality of it right at the heart. Even prisoners of war cannot have their hands tied behind their back and brought out to a wall and shot. Because it's defenselessness of the person, and to kill a defenseless person is an immoral act, however you try to legalize it. So what are you looking for when you're having those conversations with both those people who are sitting on death row and the victims' families, which you have you know, rightfully brought to the fore and has come to you through hard-won experience, it sounds like? Do you want forgiveness? Do you, you, you said there's nothing that can bring their children back to that empty chair, so... That can't happen. But what will put peace in their hearts? Peace, yeah. For those who have done an unspeakable crime, and I've meditated on this a lot and been with people, what is it like? What most people say who have done a terrible crime, if I could turn the clock back, I mean, because they do unspeakable things. And often it's enraged, emotional. It's not just cold-blooded, I'm going to go kill somebody today. But the victims' families... I've learned the best thing that I can do for them is to put them in touch with other people who've been through the journey and have come out whole. Like Lloyd DeBlanc, who's the hero in Dead Man Walking, as I mentioned, his journey was he had such hatred in his heart for the two men who had killed his son, David, 17 years old, the light of his eyes, who was so much like him. And then that journey of he saw he was losing his own heart. He was always in anger. And he's snapping at his wife and daughter. And he said, look, I'm a kind person. I would help anybody. And I was losing that. And I kept praying. I mean, he was the first victim's family really taught me the meaning of forgiveness. If you look at the word to give before, it means not letting the love and integrity that you have as a person be overcome by hate so that you become a hateful person to it poisons and kills you. He taught me that. And more and more victims' families are getting it that the death penalty is not the answer. In New Jersey, when the legislature 11 years ago were debating the death penalty, they had 62 murder victims' families that testified and said, don't kill for us. The death penalty just re-victimizes us. It puts us in a holding pattern of waiting years and years and years for the so-called justice that may or may not happen because the legal process and appeals is so complex. Mm-hmm. And the, the appeals judges and courts are overwhelmed 
I mean, look at California. They have 744 people on death row, and it means every state Supreme Court has to have a hearing and look at each case, and they're overwhelmed. They'll never get to it. Victims' families are figuring that out, and then you really see race in this, too. Black families, like we had a group called Survive in New Orleans for victims' families. All of the families, African-American, they didn't even expect investigators to come out with it. Like Virginia Carr, she had two sons killed within six months, and they didn't even investigate the murders. Because if you have a negligible life, there's no outrage over a death. And that's why race cuts through the death penalty, and it always will. Sister Helen Prejean is with us. The Atlanta Opera is presenting Dead Man Walking next month. That is a opera based on her book and also the movie with Susan Sarandon, Oscar-winning movie, so a huge profile movie. Did you begin to look at yourself differently after you saw that? I mean, this was a—you became a hero to many people, I'm sure vilified by many who and still are pro-death penalty. Mm -hmm. But, you know, see yourself as a— an advocate as an activist, had you been before or had it just been about that personal relationship? You know, when your eyes have seen what my eyes have seen, you know, I've accompanied six human beings to be executed. And I believe in the goodness of the American people's hearts. I have crisscrossed this nation more than I can tell you. I can't tell you how many times I've been in and out of Georgia. And when you can get people and bring them into the full story so they can be in touch with both parts of their own hearts, most people, most people are good and would not want government in this preordained fashion taking people out and killing them. But they've been made to be afraid. Oh, if we don't execute them, they'll kill people in prison. They've been so demonized. When you are made to be afraid, like immigrants at the border, when you're made to be afraid of people, then you say, yeah, do whatever you have to do. And it's easier than to promote violence. But when you see it, when you're close to what it means, most people get it. So what is the alternative? I mean, is... Well, the alternative is, first of all, draw a line in the sand, in the sand and never permit government to be the arbiter of who's going to live and who's going to die, and we're going to set up a system by which that happens. The other is we have to start thinking of our penal institutions more in terms of restoring life instead of just pure pain and punishment. Why is our basic myth that when you do something wrong, you must be punished for it, you must experience pain for it? Does it go back to the to the ancient story of the fall of Adam and Eve who were punished and were thrown out of the garden. Is there another way that we can restore life? And more and more in restorative justice are turning to Native American models where when a crime has been done in a community, the circle of the community gathers, talks together about what has been, who's been hurt, what can be done. Now, we will always need to have a legal system but much more about restoring life. So now we have alternate drug courts so young people aren't sent to prison forever because they had a drug crime that wasn't even related to violence. We're making our way slowly, but it's about life, and it's about living, and it's about not putting ourselves up to be the arbiters of life and death. So the audience, I always want to say to people before an opera, before they're going to go through it, 
man, they ought to have seatbelts in that chair because <laughs> you are really going to go on a deep journey here. Had you ever been seen much opera before you saw no, this performed? No, I'd seen one opera. I wasn't an opera goer at all. But, boy, I can see the reality. You know, operas used to be about really live stuff that was Opera, happening. Yes. Yeah, in society. Things. And Jake, lo- Jake mm-hmm. Hagee, the composer, he loves to talk about it. You know, it's just like, and this is about real stuff. So Dead Man Walking, I call it pure grace of God that it's gone around the world, but it brings people into a deep journey and the power of music. I so appreciate these opera singers because of what they have to put into their work, the long, long, long hours of developing that voice and being able to boom out across an audience of a thousand people. You know, it's they're very dedicated. But, you know, knowing the profile that you have and the, and the film, obviously, which was a huge exposure for you, if somebody sees the title Dead Man Walking, playing at the Atlanta Opera or any place else, are they going to be just the convinced, those who already know your work, already have an opinion that is anti-death penalty that would go and see that work? I mean, are you going to change any minds? Well, here's the thing, and I learned this from Tim Robbins when we were, we worked on the film together with Susan Sarand Tim. Every line and every scene, I work with them. And the first thing Tim explained to me was the difference between art and propaganda. So he, as an individual, is very against the death penalty. So he said, I could shape a movie that there's only one way to come out of it, that if you don't come out against the death penalty, shame on you. But art brings you over equally to both sides of an issue so that you feel the agony of it, the anguish of it on both sides. And one of the greatest compliments he got after the film and Dead Men Walking was he got letters from people who said, before I went to the, to the movie, I believed in the death penalty. When I came out, I believed in it more. <laughs> he also got letters, which he really treasured, from victims' families. Thank you. You treated us with great respect as people really agonizing over this and not just these extreme characters saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. So that's what art is. And truthfully, the opera brings you through both of those realms in your heart, the polarities, because it opens with the murders. Everybody witnesses the murder of two innocent kids. And then, it, and then that feeling of bring on justice, it seems only a death can be the just punishment for what he just did to those two innocent people. And it's the only opera in which there's a minute and a half of silence during the execution. All you hear is the whir of the machines. And by then, we've traveled with Joseph de Roche and his own journey. And then he reaches a point, and you're with him then, when he's down on his knees, crying, and remorseful for what he has done, this incredible thing of taking a life. And when Sister Helen then says to him, now, Joseph, truly you are a son of God, because he was truthful. He acknowledged what he had done. He begged forgiveness from the, from the victim's families. And he says, and this was really true, it came from Robert Will. He said, I've been called a son of a you-know-what a lot of times, but I ain't never been called no son of God. And that's in the opera. And you see, wow, and then it ends with execution. There's profound silence in the audience because, okay, here's the justice we asked for, and now here it is. That's the closest people of Georgia are going to get 
to an actual what it means for the state to execute somebody. They can see it with their own eyes. Sister Helen Prejean, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so Great much. Great talking to you, Virginia. This time had just flown by. Sister Helen Prejean, the Atlanta Opera's production of Dead Man Walking, which is based on her book, begins on February 2nd. You can find more information at our website, gpbnews.org. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought after a short break. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Before the break, Sister Helen Prejean talked about her work and adaptations of her memoir, including Dead Man Walking, an Oscar-winning film and an opera. In fact, the most performed new American opera of this century. And it's coming to Georgia. The Atlanta Opera's production of Dead Man Walking runs February 2nd through the 10th. The company's artistic director, Tomer Zvulun, directs the production, and in the role of Sister Helen is international opera star and proud Georgian native Jamie Barton. They spoke with GPB's Sarah Zaslaw. Jamie Barton, welcome back to GPB. It's so good to be back. And Tomer Zvulun, great to see you too. Nice to see you. Whatever the stereotype of opera is, Dead Man Walking is not it. There are no colorful wigs and bustles, right? No foreign languages, no romantic intrigue. It's set mostly in a prison, and it's a recent true story. Jamie Barton, what did you do to prepare to sing and act the part of this real live person, Sister Helen Prejean? Have you met her? I have. I actually, I met her just a few nights ago for the very first time. We had dinner. It was absolutely fantastic. She's just a wonderful force of a human being. But Mostly what I did to prepare for portraying her was just to watch a lot of interviews that she's done and really just to dive into the text like this is a straight theater play rather than an opera. Try to understand especially the intricacies of the relationship between Sister Helen Prejean and the man who's on death row who she's walking with, Joseph Desrochers. I'm really, really focusing on the text. My, my goal in this is that the audience won't ever have to look up and look at the words to understand what I'm saying. You know, I, this particular show being set in the South, I want this to be a comfortable thing for people to slip into in that kind of way so that it will give them the freedom to do the hard thinking that will come along with this for the audience. But in case they miss a word of yours, you're saying that the words will also be on super titles. Exactly. It'll be at the very top of the theater proscenium. <laughs> Dead Man Walking focuses on a murderer on death row and our criminal justice system and the death penalty. The opera establishes this man's guilt right from the top. We witness this shocking crime ourselves. So this isn't a did he or didn't he kind of situation. It's about the complex aspects of condemning even a guilty person to death as well as notions of confession and forgiveness. On Second Thought is interviewing Sister Helen herself. But within the opera, Jamie, how does your character relate to these issues? Well, I think it's a, a struggle for her as well. You know, when Sister Helen was doing this for the first time, she told me, you know, somebody approached her and said, hey, would you like to be a pen pal with, a, with a, an inmate? And she was like, sure. And so she started doing it. Never did she imagine that she would end up where she is now, being an advocate for uh, the prison reform that needs to happen. This 
opera happens to capture that moment, all all the steps that lead to her being with this particular person to his very end. And so there's a lot to process through. There's a lot of, um, she's terrified walking into a prison for the first time. She's never had that experience. There's, there's working through the feelings of trying to forgive him. Her job as a nun <laughs> to be there for him is to provide that Christ-like love, to provide a space for him to feel connection and safe enough to, in the end, confess that he did this. Tomorz Vulun, Sister Helen in real life campaigns against the death penalty. Does the opera take a stand? Not at all. That's the beautiful thing about the opera is that uh, Jake Hagee understood something very simple about the difference between propaganda and art. In order for audiences to be drawn to a story, they have to feel like it allows them uh, freedom to form their own opinion. And our duty uh, is to represent both sides of the story. We are not promoting any kind of political agenda, and nor does Jake Hagee. And his genius in this opera is that he is telling the story of both families that were impacted by that horrible deed. At the very beginning of the opera, as you mentioned, uh, those two teenagers are brutally murdered by Joseph Desrochers. It's not a murder mystery. But then we get to meet those two sides, the parents of the victims. They're devastated for the loss of the most precious things for them, their kids. And then we're also introduced to the mother and the brothers of that murderer. And it's interesting because Hagee writes some of his most beautiful melodic music uh, and gives it to the mother. This cast at the Atlanta Opera hasn't recorded this opera, but there are recordings from previous casts. Jamie, could you pick a highlight or two and walk us through? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of the recording from Houston Grand Opera with Joyce DiDonato and Philip Cutlip. The one that comes to mind right now is at the very top of the second act where Sister Helen is struggling with the fact that she realizes that she hasn't fully forgiven Joseph de Rocher. Sister Rose tells her that she needs to forgive him, but explains that forgiveness is something that is shown in the smallest gesture. It's not something you tell somebody that you have forgiven them, but just showing them that you, you're there for them. It's some of the most beautiful music in this opera. I absolutely love it. Tomar's Vulun, do you have a particular favorite moment in Dead Man Walking? I absolutely love the scene where Sister Helen is taking her journey from Hope House in New Orleans to um, Angola Prison. She doesn't know this person who writes her letters and is a cold-hearted murderer, and she's about to meet him for the first time and escort him to his death, and that's a very powerful moment in the opera. Journey to 
Jamie Barton and Tomer Zvulun, we mentioned that Dead Man Walking is atypical because you're able to consult the real-life main character, Sister Helen. The composer, Jake Heggie, is alive, too. And that's a situation you don't have when you're doing a Mozart or Wagner opera or something like that. Did you consult him personally while working on this? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All the time. I've been in text conversation with Jake for, uh, well, for months, quite honestly. I've been uh, wrapping my head around the role. I, uh, <laughs> every once in a while, I've texted him and I said, Jake, man, you're going to make me cry. Every 10 minutes I sit down to do something, I, there's something so beautiful, uh, tears just well up. <laughs> but he's he's been a very, very supportive part of my process in this. Uh, I would venture to say he is the greatest living composer of opera, and he is just as kind and accessible as they come. Tomer, as the artistic force behind this particular new production of Dead Man Walking, you're spending a lot of time with this opera. How did you decide what we should see on stage? And in the end, what do we see? So it all started with a conversation with Jake. I asked him on the phone after talking about the piece and the characters, is the one thing that you haven't seen in all the productions so far? He said at the beginning, after the murder, Sister Helen sings. And immediately after that there's a scene with children where she's teaching them. And in no other production were we able to see Sister Helen seeing the murder as if it's in her mind and reliving it because she is visiting the location that it happened during the show. And so the whole production was designed around the idea of seamless transitions between scenes. There are many scenes in this opera what do you want us to be thinking or feeling as we walk out of the opera Dead Man Walking at the end after, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, after witnessing an onstage lethal injection? You know, there's many ways to interpret Dead Man Walking. I mean, on the surface, it's a story about a murderer who's sentenced to death row and a nun who becomes a spiritual advisor and takes him there. But for me, it's much more profound than that simple story. To me, it's a story about parents and about children. Uh, All of us are children, and many of us are parents. And there is nothing more precious to us than that relationship. Each character in Dead Men Walking, each of those protagonists, have a support system, have a family. The victims have parents. And they are starving for a resolution for themselves. The murderer has a family. He has brothers. He has a mother that loves him. And what Dead Men Walking does to me and to many audience members is make us reflect about our own relationships, our own fears, and uh, the possibility that when you have a child, you don't know what will happen to them. Are you a parent? I am a parent, yeah. And when I directed this show for the first time, my wife was pregnant with our first child, and now she's pregnant with our second. And so I cannot help but think about how precious it is to have a child and uh, just the dangers out there in the world and the hope that they will be okay. So alongside all of the moral and artistic considerations mounting an opera, there are the business considerations. It's always important for arts organizations to sell tickets, and I'm sure you think about revenue when you're planning your season of three or four main stage productions. Did you expect to attract a larger or smaller audience than usual with Dead Man Walking than when you put on a Puccini or a Verdi 
No, we did not expect to uh, attract as many people. Our interest in doing dead men walking basically has three reasons. Number one, it is the most performed modern opera of our time. And it's time that it will be shown in Atlanta. The second reason is that it's an absolute masterpiece, theatrical, operatic masterpiece. And the third one is that we're committed to stimulating critical conversations. And those conversations about uh, death penalty, um, about faith, about crime, about social justice, are conversations that are very important for us and for the city. In mid-January, we had a wonderful event at the uh, Center for Ethics at Emory University that allowed us to connect with members of the community and talk about uh, social justice and the uh, idea of uh, the death penalty. For us, it's very, very important. And at the same time, I can share with you that we are selling tickets on a pace that makes us uh, quite happy at this point. Mm. Do you expect the show to draw a more diverse audience than your typical opera crowd? Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of uh, audience members that are familiar with uh, the movie, uh, but there's also a significant number of audience members that are familiar with Sister Helen and her book. Tomer and Jamie, this is all pretty heavy stuff. Are rehearsals for Dead Man Walking all depressing and then you go home and have nightmares, or does everyone manage to have some fun along the way? Well, it's a room full of friends. It is a heavy subject, but there is a lot of levity in the the rehearsal room. You, you can't avoid that if you have Kevin Burdett in the rehearsal right. room. He's singing in The Warden. Uh, I've actually sung with him twice before, and both have been comedic roles. He's like the Jim Carrey of opera. <laughs> uh, but truly speaking, I think we're all uh, sensitive to the fact that we're all going through some difficult walks with this. After we had staged the execution scene and done it for the first time, a lot of us were in tears. And I looked around and people are holding each other's hands and they're hugging each other. And I had friends coming up to me saying, what can I do? What can I do to to help make this easier for you? It's just that support. There's something very, very special in this particular company and in this particular city. It's refreshing and it absolutely helps getting through a, a difficult staging day. And I did neglect to mention the star of the show, in addition to Jamie, is uh, Michael Mays, who is one of the greatest singer-actors of our time. He was recently seen here as Sweeney Todd. He's performing right now the role of Joseph de Rocher all over the world, and um, he's not to be missed. As a final note, is there uplift within the opera itself? What's the lightest moment? <laughs> there are several light moments, actually. The the moment that comes to me is where he's waiting. He, it's about 7 p.m. on the night that he's going to die. And he and Helen have this moment where they connect over the fact that she actually did go to Vegas at one point when she was a little girl and she saw Elvis. And he loves Elvis. And they sit there and they, they sing little licks of Heartbreak Hotel and <laughs> You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, Joseph, <laughs> that sort of thing. Thomas Vulun and Jamie Barton, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Jamie Barton plays Sister Helen Prejean in the Atlanta Opera's production of Dead Men Walking. Tomer's Vulun directs. The show runs February 2nd through the 10th. They spoke with Sarah Zaslaw, host of Nightcap, on most GPB stations. This recording features Joyce DiDonato and Philip Cutlip with the Houston Grand Opera.
in Macon, classical musicians are stepping off stage and into the ICU. GPB's Grant Blankenship reports on music as medicine. The intensive care unit at Nevisant Health's hospital in Macon is like ICUs everywhere. Nurses and doctors constantly checking in on the seriously ill, all while trying to keep the noise down. But there's one sound you can't escape. So much beeping. That's Nevisant ICU nurse Taylor Rickert. These monitors beep, the, the machines beep, the pumps beep, everything beeps. You get home at night, it still beeps. Rickert says the beeps are important, of course, because they communicate about the conditions of patients. She couldn't do her job without them. But in terms of emotional well-being, the beeping can be tough. That's why it was a relief when violist Keone Bolding unpacked his instrument near one of the ICU nurses' stations on a recent morning and launched into a set of mostly Christmas favorites. Bolding was invited here by Avanish Barr, one of the ICU's doctors. Barr doesn't play music himself. I play the radio. <laughs> but about a year ago, he recognized the value of having music in what can be an emotionally chilly place. It's cold. It's very clinical. I felt the need that at least we needed to introduce the concept of at least something more human or humane in the ICU to kind of make it a soft environment. And it's not just that music on the ward feels nice. Barr says there's science behind this. Uh, there's some studies have shown that when you use music, you've reduced the anxiety that patients have, the fear that patients have. One study showed that music before and after surgery was better at reducing anxiety than anti-anxiety medication. Studies suggest classical music works best here. For the elderly, playing the music they enjoyed in their youth has documented benefits. You reduce some delirium or episodes of confusion because it's something they can relate to. Studies suggest not all music is created equal for the purposes of intensive care. Jazz? It might require too much mental attention to be therapeutic. And heavy metal and techno can apparently cause heart arrhythmias in a clinical setting, so no turning it up to 11. Dr. Barr says musicians in the hallway are a nice start, but he's not sure patients hear it from the other end of the ward. Uh, but yeah, so I think some other ICUs do have the facilities for that, where music's piped in directly to a patient's bedside. That would allow more personal music choices, too. Keone Bolding plays a set at either end of the ward so everyone can hear. Deneen Schumann is among those outside their loved one's rooms listening in. Schumann shoots video on her phone as Bolding plays and sings along until he's done. And then she checks to see how her father-in-law enjoyed it. Oh, just to see the look on his face. The music just makes your soul just dance. It turns out music can be good medicine, too. That's GPB's Grant Blankenship. And that is our show for today. On Second Thought is produced by Elena Rivera, Leighton Rowell, LaRaven Taylor, and Amelia Brock. Alex Word is our engineer, Don Smith, our dean of grammar, and Amy Kiley is our senior producer. We always welcome your thoughts. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. And you can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. Our theme song is by Alex Crispin and Marshall Ruffin. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks for spending some time with us today. This is On Second Thought. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.